You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Rob Tumbrella. My name is Rob. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and I just want to say um, hello. I could have done that earlier and just did not do it. So, uh, good to meet you. Uh, I'm one of the pastors, and I'm so glad that you're here. Glad that you're, you're joining us for Mother's Day if you're brand new with us. And um, how this whole timing worked out, we weren't planning on starting a, a new series called God's Imperfect Family on Mother's Day. It just worked out that way. It just worked out that way. So uh, we're just going to start a new series called God's Imperfect Family. It's a four-part series. And what we're going to be exploring together every Sunday, starting with this Sunday, is God's grace, his perfect grace, for our imperfect families. And I don't know if that's a new category for you, that your family is not perfect. It's less than perfect. It's, in fact, imperfect. But how we're going to, to explore how that intersects with our lives is exploring how God's grace touches God's imperfect family, his, his imperfect family. And so we're going to study the lives of four individuals, the patriarchs, and that's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And uh, that's actually the name of God throughout the Old Testament, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so we're going to take one individual each Sunday in the next four Sundays and just see how, how, what, what does God do in, in their imperfect family. And so uh, we have a number of here, up here that as I'm preaching, if, if you have a question or something uh, comes to mind that you would like addressed in the podcast, you can text that number, 469-573-2920. And that will go uh, uh, to, the, to the podcast. So today we're looking at Genesis chapter 16. It's on page 7 uh, in the paperback Bible in the seat behind you or in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, that's a gift from us to you. Just take it with you. And uh, so it's, it's way back at the beginning is where we are at, uh, talking about God's imperfect family. And if you want the background, let me just share a little bit of the background here, uh, and then we'll pray. Uh, the background for the next four weeks is this is after Noah. If you're brand new to the Bible, this is right after the story of Noah. Or I guess I should do it like this. Here's Noah and the ark, that whole story. And then you've got Moses and the Exodus right here. And our study is going to be right in between that. What happens in between Noah and Moses? And that's the story of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and uh, Joseph. So uh, that being said, while you're turning to, to page 7 or getting out your device, let me pray one more time and we'll get started here. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and speak to us. We thank you for all the ways that you have been pointing us to Jesus. And now as we open up your word, we pray again, Lord, that, that you would open up our hearts to you and open up our minds to you. And you would make us attentive and help us to lean into truth, help us to lean into grace here today. And we ask for change and transformation the kind that only you can do. So, so have your way, Lord. Just have your way. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. So who is Abraham or who is Abram? And I'm going to say that word interchangeably in today's message probably because it's the same person. Abram that we're looking at in chapter 16 becomes Abraham in chapter 17. Her, uh, Sarai, his wife, uh, later becomes Sarah. Same word. Sometimes I'll say the opposite, so don't let that confuse you. I'm sorry about that. Uh, 
Abram's story starts in Genesis chapter 12. It's a few chapters before chapter 16. And how his story starts, basically, is God coming to Abram and establishing something that is new for Abram. Now, Abram is 75 years old when God starts something brand new in his life that he never saw coming. So let's give it up for any 75-year-old people in the room right now that are ready for God to do something and start something brand new in their life. We got anybody like that in here? Yeah, okay. We bless you. This is the story for you. Okay, at 75, God starts this new, fam- this new family story uh, with Abram and Sarai, and he does it by establishing something called a covenant. Now, if, if you're new to that word, it simply means Ian Duguid would describe it this way. He's an Old Testament scholar. A covenant is a relationship based on the surrender of control. That's how the Old Testament understands covenant. Now, we have marriage covenants, and there is a sort of a mutual submission that takes place in that. But the defining word in the Old Testament is sort of one way. When God, God doesn't mutually submit to us, he comes and he offers a relationship based on their surrender and control. And that's what happens in Genesis chapter 12. God comes to this man, Abram, out of the blue at 75 and says, I want to establish a relationship, and I want you to surrender. I want you to submit yourself uh, to me. And it's going to be a relationship. It's going to be a covenant. And the promise that he says to him is, I will make you a great nation, and I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make your name great so that you're going to be a blessing uh, to others. And I will bless those who bless you, and I will uh, dishonor those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So, so God gives this promise to Abram, and he does he does an amazing thing. He believes God. He takes God at his word, and he simply believes. And that's where it starts. New stories start when we believe promises from God, not when we make promises to God. And oftentimes we get that backwards. We think our story changes and shifts whenever we make that promise to God. And so some of you this week, you made a promise to God. Or this year, the beginning of the year, you made this promise, and your story didn't change. But our, prom- our stories change when we believe a promise from God, and we say yes to that and, and simply trust uh, that promise. And that's what Abra- Abraham does. That's what Abram does. And that's where we find him in Genesis chapter 12. But in the same chapter where he is commended for faith and, and just for believing God, taking him at his word, we also see that Abraham is this tragically flawed character. He's, he's got some significant issues in his life, some significant fear issues. So God promised him all this land in, in Canaan, and then there's this famine, and he heads back to Egypt, which is a theme that continually takes place in the book of Genesis. He goes back to Egypt, and while he's in Egypt, Pharaoh sees Sarai, his wife, and takes her in uh, to be with him, and God won't have that, and plagues Pharaoh, and Pharaoh is going to uh, Abram and says, why did you not tell me that she was your wife? And then Abraham's like backpedaling, well, she was sort of my wife, and uh, sort of my sister, and it just kind of does this, basically lies. It does this self-preserving lie out of fear of what 
Pharaoh could potentially do to him that he's not afraid of just kind of letting his wife uh, go. And it's just awful. It's an awful scene that takes place right after God establishes this covenant relationship with Abram. And that's what we see happen throughout Abram's life and Jacob's life. That's what we're going to be studying together. And throughout the, the book of the, throughout the Old Testament is that God makes a covenant and uh, Abram fails the covenant and God renews the covenant. And they, they grow, but growth is slow. Obedience is slow. And they fail and God renews and they fail and God renews the covenant. And that's what happens in Genesis 12. That's what happens in Genesis 15 before chapter 16 where we are today. That's what's going to happen in Genesis chapter 17. It's this ongoing commitment from God and, and, and we see failure and flaws in who God makes these covenants with. So here we are in Genesis chapter 16. Are you guys with me so far? Genesis chapter 16. Um, Ten years have gone by since Genesis 12 when, when God first made that promise to Abram and Sarai about having children that are going to make, make up a nation. So 10 years has gone by, a decade. Now, that's a long time, right? I don't know if you've waited for anything in your life for 10 years, month by month and year after year. But in Genesis 16, Sarai is barren and and Abraham's not getting any younger. He's 85 now. And so he's old and she's old. And what we're going to do is let's walk through Genesis chapter 16 and just have a few takeaways at the end of the story. So, so if you're with me, look at verse 1 of chapter 16. And it starts out with the word now, which is a signal to say something's about to happen here. Uh, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And she had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. So you can already kind of see where this is going, right? You don't have to know anything about the Bible to kind of see. I, I can see where this is going. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram Listen to the voice of Sarai. So, after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. So, let's walk that back to what's going to happen here is a perfect storm is going to develop. And here are the elements of the perfect storm. Sarai is desperate. She's heard this promise, but she's waited 10 years. And she's lived through a decade of infertility. And it seems absolutely hopeless. It seemed hopeless in 75. It really feels hopeless now. And she's desperate and she's frantic. And she creates a plan. And she's going to move forward with this, with this plan and I don't know about you, but in my life, anytime I've been in this hurry-up mode and I'm going to create, create a plan and I didn't get a lot of counsel and I didn't pray about it, that plan usually doesn't go so well. And it doesn't go well in this moment either. Um, Abram in the story just seems to be, I don't know, a bit of a wallflower, a bit of, of a detached guy. He's negligent um, and aloof. Like, he, can't you see what's going to happen here? Um, can't you see the, the, 
the struggle that your wife is going through and how she's tempted and the plan as it's unfolding. We don't know what he's thinking. He seems to be completely aloof and just kind of doing whatever's being suggested of him. And so he just goes and marries Hagar and and uh, and and what about Hagar? So wh- where is she going on? What's happening with her? Well, she's weirdly silent about this proposal. Now she is she is a servant, um, and maybe she didn't have a big voice, but it seems like she could have said something. Uh, she doesn't say anything, and she's potentially opportunistic in this moment because she's a servant. She doesn't have a lot of power in the family, and that this could be a moment of leveraging power to to her. You know, like she's the woman that. Is, is successful and prosperous and, and conceived a child when you didn't conceive a child. And so and there, there might already be this weird competitiveness between Hagar and Sarai. Um, sometimes that happens in a family. And so there could be this weird competitiveness, and, and she could see it as an opportunistic moment for her. So she's silent. She goes along with it. And then this plan blows up immediately. It does not take... It doesn't take 20 years for this thing to to unravel. It unravels quick and fast and immediate. Look at verse 4. When she saw, that Sarai saw that Hagar had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Notice this is immediate. Immediately after she conceives. uh, On a plan that she presented and, and they were following through on. In verse 5, Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, you looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. And you can see those exclamation points, right? This is a woman that is furious. She is angry. Sarai despises Hagar. That's what contempt means. It means to despise somebody to their core. Sarah despises Hagar. She's her enemy. She's in her family, but she's hating her. When she saw, she looked with contempt. That's how she's looking upon her. She's my enemy, and I hate her, and I despise her. Sarai, in this same moment, accuses Abram of wrongdoing. I mean, it's kind of her plan, right? But somehow Abram is the person who's wrong in this. Either you allowed this to happen or you're, you, know, you, you have this affection for Hagar now because she's able to conceive and I haven't been able to conceive. And you've always wanted Hagar anyway. You always thought Hagar was, was going to be more prosperous than me and, and all that anyway, right? And so, so she accuses Abram of wrongdoing so much so that she brings the Lord into it and, and says, may the Lord judge between you and me. She's so convinced that she's right. You ever done that? You're so convinced that you're right. You bring heaven and earth in on the, the, the argument, right? You bring the Lord in, you know, like the Lord. Let me the Lord judge between you and me. She can't see her own contribution to this problem. She's only seeing there's some foul play going on with Abram and Hagar. And so she's despising both of them. And, uh, and Sarah accuses Hagar of despising her. And says, uh, she looked upon me with contempt. So we don't know who started with, you know. What, she despised me, or, and then I despised her. Or they're both mutually despising each other. But, you know, Hagar's angry at Sarai, too. Like, there's this mutual contempt for each other. So Hagar's equally 
um, a part of this. And then we also see that Abram is, he, I mean, he's, he's either, I don't know if it's a fear of the Lord or he's just scared of Sarai. Uh, but he goes on with her plan and turns his back on Hagar. I mean, absolutely turns his back on her. Uh, Verse 6, Abram said to Sarah, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. I mean, talk about wanting to avoid all the, the, avoid a fight and an argument. He he says, take all that emotional energy and anger that you have towards me. And how about this? Direct it all towards Hagar and do to her as you please. And she does. Uh, Sarah dealt harshly with her. She's ugly to her. She's horrible to her. So, I mean, Abram is, this is an awful thing that he does, um, that he says to Sarah. And this is awful in the way that she's now feels empowered by her husband to treat Hagar, who now deals harshly with her. Well, what does Hagar do? She fled from her. She, Hagar runs away. Hagar's like, I'm out. I'm out of this dysfunctional family. I went out of the nightmare. You're, I'm, I'm out of this crazy family. And so if you've ever been in a place where you've said, man, I want to run away from this dysfunctional nightmare of a family, uh, you would get along with Hagar. You guys would have a lot in common because she's like, I want out of this thing. I don't want anything to do with her anymore. I don't want anything to do with him anymore. I at one time thought this was a great family. Not anymore. I'm out. This thing is too dysfunctional and it's an absolute nightmare. And so she takes off. She runs away. And uh, we pick up the story in verse 7. She runs away and look what happens. The angel of the Lord found her. This is a messenger of the Lord representing God himself. The Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. So she's heading back to Egypt. She's going back to her other family, the family that she knew years past. And she's just hoping life is better there. She's on her way home to to Egypt. In verse 8, And the the angel says, Hagar, servant of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? Just meets her right here in the present. And she says, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarah. So she knows where she's coming from, but she doesn't have an answer for the future. She doesn't know where she's going to, but she knows she doesn't want anything to do with that family. And the angel of the Lord said to her, return. Return. To your mistress and submit to her. Which is, that's a tall order. That's a big ask. But notice what it comes with. And the angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude, which sounds very curious with the promise that God gave to Abram. If you follow me and if you trust me, if you enter into the covenant, I'm going to multiply your descendants more than the stars in the heavens. And so sort of this invitation into covenant relationship. 
I will surely multiply your offspring so they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant, and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, which Ishmael means the Lord hears, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. In other words, I heard you. The Lord heard you. And now you're going to have a child and you're going to name him the Lord hears because in your affliction, as you were running away from your nightmare family, I heard you in your affliction. The Lord heard you in your affliction. He goes on, he shall be a wild donkey of a man, which is rather unfortunate. Some of you said, I must have been visited by an angel and didn't know it. Because I kind of have that, that kiddo in my, in my life. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So, uh, in other words, I've got a mission for the child in you. I've got a purpose for his life. Um, and and so, so, don't, so don't give up hope. There's something happening here behind the scenes that you're unaware of. And in verse 13, so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing, which that literally means you are the God who sees me. You're a God who sees me. For she said, truly here, I have seen him who looks after me. I'm seeing him who sees me. He knows me. He knows my affliction. He knows everything about my fear and my anxiety. He knows what I've run from. He knows every the way that I've been harshly treated in my life. He sees me in the wilderness, on the run. And I, I, I'm seeing him who sees me. And it's just, it's breathtaking for Hagar. And it's so breathtaking. Verse 14 says, the, there was a well that was called Ber Laharoi, and it lies between Kadesh and Bered. And that, uh, that, that, that well means that the Lord sees. In verse 15, she goes back, and Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. And Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abraham. So, so just to summarize, God finds her on the run, tells her to return, tells her that she's going to be blessed if she returns. And then Hagar has this dramatic change of heart. At first, she was this despising person towards Sarah. And, you know, maybe rubbing it in her face. But now she's got this radical change of heart where she's not even afraid to go back there into that relationship, back into the dysfunction, back into the mess She's not afraid to go back there because she's had this encounter with God. And so she, she heads back. And, and Abram receives her back, calls the boy Ishmael. This isn't the, this isn't the promised plan. This, wasn't, this, is a, this is not what God had in mind. And yet this is still in God's sovereignty, his plan. And he's going to use this child. And there's, there's going to be another child that's going to come that we'll look at next week. So that's a, that's a strange story, right? It's a curious story. And, and if we just take a moment here, we could ask ourselves, what in the world does this have to do with me? What does this have to do with my 
life? What does this have to do with my family? Well, uh, think about this well. Let's just, just three very quick things here. Number one, every family has brokenness. Every family has brokenness. Your family has brokenness. My family has brokenness. Abraham's family has brokenness. Hagar came from brokenness. Abraham came from brokenness. Abram's going to have some kids that are really broken. We'll see that in Isaac's life. And then we'll see it, really see it in Jacob's life. (laughs) And then we'll really see it in Joseph's life as well. And so brokenness, we come from it because of sin, and we, we, we give it away. And, and it doesn't stop with us. Like, we always want, well, it's just going to die with me. This is where it ends. This is where my family dysfunction ends. This is where all that stuff that I had to deal with as a child and all that stuff I had to deal with as a young adult, this is where it's going to end right here. And, and yet, even in our resolves, it, it, it trails off into uh, brokenness after us. Sin ensures that families aren't equally dysfunctional, but they all suffer from its effects. We all suffer from sin. We all have sin, and we are all part of families. And so there's a little crazy in every single family because there's a little crazy in you. And uh, it's not just the crazy uncle or the, you know, you're, you're the crazy uncle too to somebody. Um, so we're not equally broken. It's not as though it's all, you know, all bad. There's redemption, but there is, there is this dysfunction that we all come from and contribute to. So in every family, in your family, there's Sarah's sin at work. What's that? What's Sarah's sin? Sarah's sin is unbelief, just not believing God. There's fear. There's people in your family trying to control the situation, trying to make it work, trying to pull everything together and control you. And uh, it's not working because you don't want to be controlled and you're tired of being controlled. And so you're throwing off that control. And, uh, and so, but there's somebody trying to control you or you're trying to control somebody in your life. And if that person could just figure it out and just do what I say or do what I suggest and it's frustrating, it's causing anxiety in your life. Or there's jealousy. There are subtle jealousies in families that are just kind of really below the surface of comparison and competitiveness, often in siblings. Um, I want to be the better son. I want to be the better daughter. Listen, that stuff, you know, I (laughs) used to think that kind of thing just happened when they were like really little, you know, or something. But sibling rivalries go on, man. It just goes on, right? You guys are with me on that. There's a, a comparison temptation, a competitive temptation, a jealousy. It's like Sarah looking out and looking with contempt upon um, somebody that she should have no, no jealousy towards. A harshness that can settle in, a bitterness towards a family member. Uh, you're harsh towards somebody because of something they have or something that they've accomplished that you haven't accomplished. Uh, or somebody's been harsh to you. Unfairly, you've been judged unfairly in your family. Some something's been, uh, somebody's been ugly and harsh and uh, hostile to you. What about Hagar's sin? Everybody's got this going on in their families. Uh, despising going on, bragging going on. Families sometimes is this myriad temptations 
towards displaying our lives and winning and just proving to the world that we're better than other people in our families and, and boasting. And uh, Hagar had that kind of going on, leveraging kind of power, leveraging I'm better, you know, conversations about people, around people, trying to leverage things. I mean, you know what I mean? So we got Hagar's sin going on. We've got Abraham's sin of selfishness and laziness and passiveness and, frankly, foolishness. Abraham just makes a foolish decision, and everybody suffers the consequences of that. Have you ever experienced that in your life? Somebody you love, somebody you respect made a foolish decision, and you, were, you, you, had, you had to live with the effects of that decision. You didn't have anything to do with the decision, but you had to live with the effects of the decision. And maybe you're still living with those effects. You wanted to get close to somebody, but they've been lazy or they've been passive. They've been emotionally <clears throat> detached from you. You wanted that hug or that hold or that word of uh, commendation that you're okay, that I love you, that you're enough, and you you haven't got it yet, and you're still wishing that that person would speak something over you that was more loving and kind and, and that kind of thing, and not be so passive, not be so lazy, not be so emotionally detached like Abraham is. All of us have this going on. In some way, shape, or form, these kind of things intersect all of our lives and all of our families. And the healthiest thing that we can do is just own up to that and say, yep, that's me. That's our family. That's where I come from. And what's so funny in the church world is we, we can assume that my family's dysfunctional and has problems, but the family over here, no way. You know, you're just doing that thing where you look across and say, not that family. Well, let me assure you as a pastor that person over here is saying the same thing about your family, that there's no way, man, not, not like mine, not like, like my issues. And um, we've all got it, right, because um, we, we're still fighting and resisting sin, and so we all have brokenness. Uh, there's this book that I want to recommend for the next four weeks as we go through our, our series by Russell Moore. It's called The Storm Toss Family, How the Cross Reshapes the Home. And I love this book because he really talks about the beauties of family and the joys of family and the laughter of family. Family is great, um, but family is also very difficult and it's very hard. And we need uh, a vision of family through the cross. And so that's what this book is about. It's not, it's not, it's not a how-to book. It's how to see things, how we're supposed to see things. It's not just for parents. It's for singles and it's for parents and it's for Every stage of life, really, and it talks about the, the challenges and all those things. And uh, one of the things I love about that he writes in this book is if he, if he were hooked up to a polygraph test and they said, what's your favorite holiday? He, he said, I know I'm supposed to. I'm a pastor. I'm a preacher. I'm supposed to say something like Christmas or Easter or Thanksgiving. But uh, honestly, it's Halloween. And he says, uh, he says, here's why it's Halloween. He says, in this book, the best part of the night for me, Halloween, had nothing to do with candy or costumes. But because unlike Christmas or Thanksgiving, there was never any family drama on Halloween. No one packed us up to drive us to the house of some great aunt or second cousin on Halloween. No one sat us down at a card table for a meal. Someone frantically stressed about getting just right. You guys with me on this? Oh, I love that. He says, no one would compare this Halloween to the Halloween of years past. 
No one would get his or her feelings hurt. Nobody's going to upend Halloween with a fiery dinner table discussion about how Uncle Ronnie drinks too much. (laughs) No one had to pretend that this was the most wonderful time of the year. No one slammed a door and cried out through tears, You've ruined our Halloween! Come on, you guys, somebody's experienced that at Christmas. You've ruined Christmas. He says, however scary headless horsemen and swamp things could be, sometimes a Christmas dinner or an Easter egg hunt or a wedding reception. thats It's May, y'all. We got wedding receptions. Or a child's birthday party can be even more terrifying than a haunted wood. Can you relate to the terror of family and of our past and of our temptations and of our competitiveness and of our bragging and of our, ah, you know what I mean? All of that, we, we have to own up to the terror and how we're, we're terrified of the brokenness. And so what we do with that is really strange. We do all kinds of different things with that. But we all do one thing, and that is what Hagar does in the story. We all try to run from our family brokenness. One one way, shape, or form, we want to get away from the brokenness as far as we can. So for some of us, that means we run from certain people in our family. Hello, you run from certain people in your family. You uh, You pretend they don't exist, or you defriend them, or you mute them. And I'm not saying that's all bad. I'm just saying that we run, right? We run. There is something about an individual in your life that you, you think, I don't want anything to do with that person. They've hurt me too many times, and uh, so we run. We run from certain topics around the dinner table. We, uh, sometimes that's just plain wisdom, but we still we run from certain topics. Sometimes we run from certain topics about certain people in our family. There are just certain people we don't, we're not going to talk about that person. And you're not welcome to talk about that, and that's, that's done and done. So uh, there you go. Uh, for some of us, we run from what our parents did as children, maybe a parenting decision that they had when we were kids that we disagree with. And so uh, rightly or wrongly motiv- motivated, we, we, the pendulum swings the exact opposite because we don't want to be like our parents. That's like the biggest nightmare we could ever have is, is to ever be. I don't want to ever be like my parents, and so we, we try to run from that. Um, we run from our pain. We block it out. We run from conflict. Uh, we run from the past, and we try to create a whole new future. And, like, Hollywood totally picks up on that because that's, <clears throat> that's like every comedy is somebody running from their past and, and recreating a future. It's Mother's Day, so in honor of the moms in here, um, any ladies in here like sweet, or men too, any ladies like Sweet Home Alabama? It's okay. It's all right to say that. You like, uh, there's certain movies that if it's on TV, I'm going to stop everything, and I'm going to watch, uh, watch that movie, and I'm not going to tell you what those movies are, but you would agree with me. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but for my wife, if Sweet Home Alabama is on, she's going to stop everything and watch Sweet Home Alabama. Uh, and it's just funny because it's just this funny uh, comedy about all the things that sh- you think at first she's running away from, which is like this backwoods southern redneck culture. And it's, just, it's so funny and mullets and all this other stuff that she's like running away from all of that. 
But as the story goes on, you, you discover, like a lot of us, that what she's really running away from is shame in her past and pain. And she's trying to recreate a new future and find a new identity somewhere else. She's trying to get away from that, that pain of her past. And, and, like, we can relate to that, right? Like, it's a comedy, but we can relate to that. We, we, we do the same. We try to get away from that. And sometimes we re- try to recreate it in another city. Our, listen, our city is built on that dream. We're, we're running from things. We're trying to recreate something that didn't exist for us when we were kids, and we're going to have it for our kids for crying out loud. And we will kill ourselves to make sure that our kids have what we don't have. We're a city of broken dreams. Best place to raise an athlete, best place to have every dream broken. <laughs> right? Okay? This is our city, and we, we come together. We are, the, we are the same. We come to our, our city with our history of brokenness, and we're trying to create something, something new. I, uh, I went home last May. Home is uh, Santa Fe, Texas. Um, near Galveston. I went home last May for my niece's graduation party, and, um, and this was right after the school shooting, this tragic school shooting that took place in my high school. And, um, and I was sitting at, a, at my niece's graduation party, and I couldn't believe what, what happened because uh, a family member opened up about something that we were never really ever to talk about in our family, which was a suicide that took place when I was a child. Um, And it was something we never discussed ever. And I mean ever. And, uh, And he opened up and he shared about it. And what he shared in this moment of just humility and courage, just I was shocked, really. Couldn't believe we're having this conversation. Was how for so many years... He was running away from the pain and from the memories and really from the false guilt, blaming himself. And that he just, he was running as, as fast and as hard and as he could. And, and then other people in the family started running and going different directions. And, and in that conversation, I realized that for years, and this is just the flat out truth, I judged, I personally judged several people in this family because of choices that they made, not knowing how much pain and brokenness was influencing some of those decisions. And I just had to repent before the Lord, and I was so sorry. I didn't tell him that. I just, it was just kind of a personal thing. But we've got these things in our lives that are, we're not allowed to talk about, these family secrets, this thing that we, you know, we, it doesn't make it to Facebook because it's too hurtful, and we just try to run away from it. And uh, like Hagar, we just, we just run and run and run, and you can run for years. Uh, you, this happened over 30 years ago. You can run for years about something, that, something painful that happened to you in your life. For Hagar, she runs. She's in the wilderness, and the question that he asks Hagar, I wonder if you're in a place where you're running, if you can hear the Lord ask you this question, where have you come from and where are you going? 
where have you come from, and where are you going? And that's, that's not a question of, like, geographic location. God knows where you are. But that's a question of, of, of do you know that I know your past? And do you know that I know your future? And I know where you are right where you are in the present. And I see you. I'm the God who sees you. And that's super hopeful because it gets us to this last thing that we can take away from this story, and it's this. God can redeem, because he's the God that sees us, God can redeem any family brokenness. He can redeem any family brokenness. Anything that you've done, he can redeem. Anything that's been done to you, he can redeem. Any dark spot in your story, anything in your past, he can redeem. He can shift to something glorious. Look at what happens in verse 7. The Lord found her by the spring of water. The Lord found her. She wasn't looking for the Lord. The Lord found her in the wilderness and says, Hagar, where have you come from? Where are you going? And she says, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. And the angel of the Lord says, return to your mistress and submit. And the angel of the Lord says, I will surely multiply your offspring so they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said, behold, you are pregnant. You're going to bear a son. You'll, you'll call his name Ishmael, which means the Lord hears, because I listened to your affliction. And uh, it's just fascinating that like Abraham, God calls Hagar into a deeper relationship with him simply by believing a promise to return, to go back. For Hagar, that was the cross that she had to bear. That was, the, that was what God was asking her to do. Enter into this covenant. Trust me. Follow me. I hear your affliction. But in that, it's not about Sarah and it's not about Abraham and it's not about what potentially could happen in the future. It's about a deeper relationship because that's what God is offering to Hagar, just like God offered that to Abraham. Hagar's broken. Abraham's broken. But God is saying, I'm inviting you into a deeper relationship, a covenant relationship with me. And I want you to believe that promise. I want you to put faith in me and trust me and take a step towards me and believe me. And I believe the Lord's saying that to some of us here today. In fact, God gives Hagar's son the name. He's, he says the Lord hears because he listened to her affliction. And that's what's going to be Ishmael. That's what her son is going to be called. And she's so taken back by this. Look at verse 13. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing, which I'm told this is the only place in the entire Old Testament, man or woman, where somebody gives God a name that he takes on to himself. And she says, you're the God who sees me truly here. I've seen him who looks after me. I see him who sees me. And she's so amazed by that truth of just being known. She's so amazed by that. Look at verse 14. Therefore, the well was called Berlaharoi, which that literally in Hebrew means well of the living God who sees me. The well of the living God who sees me. And it stayed there. She goes back 
to Abraham and Sarai, but the well stays there. Hagar goes back to her family, as dysfunctional as it is, but she leaves a well. And I wonder if for some of us here today, God wants us to grab hold of that truth, that he can put a well where you've only known pain, where you've only known discouragement, where you've only known the temptation to block it out altogether, he can put a well of living water for you. And it'd be a well that you drink from because it's a living well, and it can be a well that other people find refreshment and find nourishment in. And they tell the story of God's redemption and his grace in your life, in the midst of the mess. Let's Let's bow our heads and pray together. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.